Welcome to The Best in Sales, your dose of education, inspiration, and entertainment with stories of the biggest wins. Maybe a typical sale was a pallet. What I sold was a truckload. And the biggest losses. We thought it was a slam dunk. It was a $15 million project. And, you know, get the phone call in the 11th hour that, sorry, you guys didn't get it. From the best salespeople in the world. Sales is not selling used cars. It's really about helping your customers to solve problems. And now your host, Owen Groman. My guest today is Mike Hallahan. Mike's the executive director of business development at Fulcrum Technologies. Mike's generated upwards of $50 million in sales in his career, started with Fulcrum 18 years ago, has been there since the beginning, and has worked his way up. Mike lives in Del Mar, California. He grew up in Laguna Beach and had spent 21 years prior to his recent move in the Seattle area, where he lived with his wife and his two five- and seven-year-old girls. Mike, welcome to The Best in Sales. Thank you so much, Owen. I appreciate it. Thank you for selecting me, too. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, thanks for making time. I know you've been really busy. We communicated about this for a while. You've got a lot, a lot going on these days at Fulcrum Technologies, right? Absolutely. There's a lot of things going on right now. So, Mike, you've been with Fulcrum for a long time, which is great because I've had a lot of guests in the early days of the best in sales who are kind of making changes in their career or starting their own thing. So it's a little bit of a different perspective so far to have someone who's uh, been with a company from the beginning and kind of seen it grow. What's your What's your experience at Fulcrum been like? Well, I am actually one of the original employees. I was part of a very small software company. Um, and, yeah, we, we grew this from a startup. Um, we took a direction with the software into telecommunications um, and started to see a niche that really fit. And, you know, we were fortunate that we, we found a niche in a market that um, was growing in telecommunications. Um, and we had a solution that really seemed to fit. Uh, and then we had a great team of people, too, that um, really seemed to pull a, a lot of things together. And we did a lot of things in business um, that – uh, we're not necessarily your typical startup, um, and, okay. and that may have been why we survived. Um, and I can elaborate on some of those things, but yeah, it's been a, a rocky ride. Um, there was a two-month period where I left the company, but that was back in 2000 when there were all the dot-coms and people were throwing a lot of money around, and I left to a startup, to another startup, uh, and then realized that that startup was not really going to take off. They had a great concept, but... Um, didn't quite have the people, and I, I could see that things were going to be very challenging. So I quickly turned around and came back to, to Fulcrum, uh, and that was literally about two months. Um, and I'm glad I came back because we, we've had, uh, since that time, in the 14-plus years since that time, we've had some really great things happen. So what solution is Fulcrum delivering to your customers? You mentioned telecommunications. So just kind of briefly, what is the what does the business do and what value does it have to the marketplace? So Fulcrum provides an asset tracking and what we call an asset lifecycle management solution um, using mobile technology to track all of the network equipment that telecommunications providers had in their warehouses, in their depots, and in the field. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the industry had seen a tremendous amount of growth. So they were buying lots of equipment and they just really had no idea what they had and where it was. So, Mike, that's uh, that's some good insight into Fulcrum, the business that you're with now as the uh, vice president of uh, sorry, executive director of business development. 
let's talk a little bit more about you and your journey and your relationship sales. So when someone asks you what you do for a living, what do you tell them? Well, you know, I tell them that I, that I, uh, that I solve a problem, that, that I, that I have a solution. And I even kind of said it before. Um, I'm not really selling a product in my mind as much as I'm solving a problem. So when they ask me, like, what do you do? I kind of describe what I just did and how we're solving a problem that, um, telecommunication carriers and providers uh, have. So just how far do you distance yourself from the word sales? I don't see it anywhere. I see it very few places even on your LinkedIn profile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and sales, I mean, even, you know, at Fulcrum, you know, uh, we are a sales-driven um, organization. Our CEO is a, a, a true salesman. Um, and, and the fact that he's um, sold lots of uh, IT hardware in the past and and uh, everything that goes along with sales too from the customer relationships and um, customer service aspect that is like very ex- uh, very important to him um, and part of our culture um, so yeah I mean with regards to sales our sales cycles being that you know, we're targeting these carriers and, and typically larger carriers the sales cycles are very long, um, and so um, it, it's it's a different type of approach in solution sales um, with the length of that sales cycle. Um, and, and I I guess I dance around the sales world a little bit uh, <laughs> as I've been doing, um, but and that's because I there's some of the stereotypes and the stigmas that come along with sales. Again, I'm trying to solve a problem, and I'm offering a solution, um, and that's. I'm not. Um, I'm not just saying that's truly how I feel, and and even as you and I talked, started to talk, um, I don't view myself as necessarily your stereotypical salesman. Um, mm-hmm. um, but many people have told me, no, you're you're you are a salesman, <laughs> and they've reinforced that to me that you are, right. and you and, and you do it well um, in the way that you approach it. Yeah, well, Mike, we talked before the show, as you alluded to, and the uh, you know the, it is the point of the best in sales to share stories like yours because almost everybody I've had on the show is a great salesperson that – I mean, they're all great salespeople, but they're great salespeople who don't think of themselves as great salespeople, right? They just think of them – like you say, um, solution selling is probably the closest you'll come to saying that you sell – uh, your background didn't necessarily you didn't start coming up through sales. I mean, I remember for me, one of the turning points in my career that got me happy about saying I was in sales was a, was a mentor I had who I worked for um, who, said, who said he really just avoided the, the sales discussion. His job was to connect the dots, and that's the way he explained it. And for some reason, maybe because I like doing connect the dots and coloring books as a kid or something, but that connect the dots phrase really stuck with me for a long time, and it sounds like you're consistent with that. Yeah, you know, I, I look at sales is obviously an extremely important uh, part to any organization. Um, and, and everyone, you know, in our company at Fulcrum, and I would expect in most organizations, is really to some degree a salesperson, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're selling their company, their offerings. Um, and, uh, if they're, and if they're not, then it's really it's maybe just a job and not necessarily a, a career. So what did you want to do when you grew up, Mike? I mean, you didn't probably start your life saying, I'm going to end up being an executive director of business development. What did, where did you start your uh, your career from way back when? Yeah, nobody ever really know. I mean, I don't think there's so many people that ever plan that out and really follow that plan too well. Right. Um, you know, I come from a background, um, from a software background, and 
I took a number of different courses in my career to, to end up in sales. And I, I probably should have bet the farm that I would end up in sales. Um, but from the very get-go of my career, I was uh, a developer at, at one point uh, of software solutions. And then I was being thrust in front of customers many times, even as a developer. And as a developer, I was kind of frustrated because I didn't like really coding eight hours or 10 hours a day, and I wanted to be in front of the customer. So um, some of the executive team at previous companies said, you really should be talking with people and sharing your technical knowledge with, you know, uh, how that translates to their needs. Um, So for me, that, that kind of evolved into more of a consultative role for me within my career, um, which is to translate uh, customer needs requirements into technical specifications. And um, and in in many cases at Barcodes West and Fulcrum Technologies, I helped to develop the software solution. Um, And then over time, uh, I started to become more and more of that consultant. Um, And consulting and sales, as you know, are pretty close, right? There's, There's many you're consulting in a number of ways as a salesperson. Right. So uh, within my career, I helped to kind of build the consulting group at Fulcrum Technologies, and uh, we got to a fairly uh, substantial size of that group. And uh, our executive team felt that I really should be helping with my efforts, and what I can do is to to take our efforts internationally um, and to get more into truly a – business development or sales role to, to help grow the company. I built the consulting organization and um, they didn't see me as a being a middle manager uh, and really wanted me to be in front of the customer, um, just as I was mentioning back to my developer days. So, you know, that's kind of how I got to where I am. And uh, it, it, it all makes sense and it feels right and um, things are good. Was there a specific occurrence, a sale that you were involved in from your developer standpoint that was sort of that pivot point where the company said, all right, Mike's got to go to the front line and start selling stuff? Um, yeah, you know, in some of the early days of Fulcrum, um, I was c- constantly in front of the customer implementing and, and doing things um, with the customer. Uh, and there were there were even some ironic instances where the customer – was not happy and I had to diffuse a lot of things and I had to help to turn that customer around. Um, and one of those was even as far back as Bell South Mobility, um, which is back in the, the late 90s. Sure. Some of our previous ownership prior to Fulcrum had made some promises and hadn't come through. Then Bell South Mobility was essentially at the end, end of their rope. They were not happy with um, the previous ownership. And so we had some new ownership come in, came in, and as I was out in the field with the customer, I started to hear a lot of feedback, and so I had to start to turn that around. And so I came back to the CEO of Fulcrum, and I said, look, we, we really, you're a new owner. Um, you've just bought this organization. I'm a fairly new employee. I'd only been there um, like six or eight months. And I said, we really need to go back out to these people and show them that, uh, what's important to you, as I said earlier, uh, customer service and customer satisfaction, being that he had been in sales roles before, he understood what I was getting at, and that was that we need to tell them that this is a new regime, that um, he and I both were um, 
new people and, and wanted to do right. And, and so we essentially went out to many of the markets in Bell South. We actually started in New Orleans, um, then drove to Mobile. Uh, roadshow. Total roadshow from Mo- from New Orleans. All And this is it, this is at the end of August, so it's hot, humid. Oh, right? boy. You don't – oh, Mike, you know the rules by now. You don't <laughs> go to the southeast from July to, like – early September. It was what it, it was what we had to do, right? So yeah, so we yeah. did and uh brave man and uh ended up in South Florida and then flew back to the uh corporate headquarters there in Atlanta. And I'll always remember um sitting side by side with the CEO in this conference room and essentially our fate was at at their hands right there. Um they were basically saying that they were going to um, stopped using the solution. Uh, again, the owner of Fulcrum had just purchased the company uh, just two months ago. Um, and so we essentially, you know, begged for a chance that, to say that we are new, um, that the promises that were made before would be honored and that we would do our best um, to, to make things right. Um, so they said, okay, gentlemen, will you please step out of the conference room for a second? We're going to talk about this. So we are standing outside of this conference room in Atlanta, which now are the AT&T offices. Of course. And, so was this in Alpharetta or where was this exactly? Um, yes, it was in Alpharetta. Were... Yeah, it was in Alpharetta. Yeah. Right. And um, so they let us back in and they said, all right, gentlemen, we're going to give you one last chance. Um, we we feel you guys are honest in, in um, what you're saying and um, let's see what you can do. And so they, they let us. Um, gave us that last chance, and sure enough, we we did everything possible um, to correct things as best we could with the solution itself, with the relationships, um, and showing a commitment to our customer. So I think that's when uh, the CEO of Fulcrum realized that uh, I was, you know, somewhat a part of his sales team and getting identifying this and, and helping him to uh, turn that around. By the way, what the heck did you guys do during that time that you were waiting outside of that room? I mean, what what is going through your mind during that time? Oh my gosh. Well, yeah, I mean, he like he had just like I said just purchased the company just 3 months prior to that. And uh you know, it, it, I I can't speak for him. I just know it was the one of the craziest times and he speaks to it in almost every company meeting for those people that are new um, to the organization to to show that if you can uh, show your customer a level of commitment and uh, and get a chance, you know, you can certainly uh, make a change. And he, re- he refers to that August of starting in New Orleans and going all the way down to South Florida and then back to Atlanta as, quote, the, the great begging tour of, of South. Nice. Uh, so I'm imagining that I know a little bit about the customer in general, not Bell Self, but uh, what they became, of course. Um, so was your roadshow was to communicate not just with the executives that were going to make the decision, but to go to each market team and make sure, you know, get their feedback on the solution and, and what was going on so that you could then take that to the executives and have that be part of the conversation? Was that kind of the essence of the trip? Absolutely. At, at that time, it was extremely important because of the distribution of these markets. It, it's it's very different today with the consolidation um, of the telcos and the the markets in those days had a lot more autonomy. So we essentially had kind of a, uh, a grassroots 
support that we wanted to, to, to drive from and really understand what those needs were. Um, at, mm-hmm. you know, as you know, when you get up to the executive level, um, there can be the telephone game that can be played and you're not really sure exactly what the issue is or if that was a older issue. And, uh, and so we really wanted to get that swell of support from the, the grassroots. And so we hit uh, a number of different markets all along the way, um, down and then, um, what's interesting is then after we got their support, we started to actually acquire more markets um, at Bell South because we'd started to solve problems and turn that around. And, of course, then there was the opportunity to, to grow the, the existing business we did have. Well, Mike, that is a powerful point that I hope everybody who's listening is is gathering. When you're working with a big company, there's always that possibility or there's that thought in your head, well, I'm just going to focus on the executives because they're the ones that are making the decision. But don't do it. You've got to work with everybody at every level and get that influence and support. And it's tough. I mean, I've been there. You think about it and go, the main thing here is closing the deal and getting the paycheck and all that kind of stuff. And what you realize when you're working with these bigger companies is it's just not going to work that way. You've got to touch on every level. You've got to gather that feedback that does not directly impact the, the sale but very much indirectly impacts it, so much so that the sale just isn't going to happen, or in your case, the retaining of the customer isn't going to happen unless you do that. So I don't know if that was your idea or the CEO's idea. Since you're our guest, I guess I'm going to say it's your idea, and it was a great one, and, and clearly you were meant to be in sales because that's a great instinct and, a, uh, and good execution. Well, I have another story that's very similar. Um, Let's hear that, it. That, that was, and it's, it's of the same company. So um, once Bell South Mobility, um, we had – you know, uh, turn them around, and there were 13 markets in the southeast. Um, w- once they had started to become singular, um, they merged with SBC. And SBC was the larger entity in that merger, uh, and they were the majority holder, right? So we had really secured the Bell South Mobility um, people, and, and we had a tremendous amount of support from them. And so singular started to go through some analysis of um, looking for a solution um, like ours, but that can be deployed for the new company singular. And so we essentially had to fight for our lives there. Um, and it was truly my idea um, in this case, too, because we had um, a situation where SBC already had a homegrown built system that was fully integrated into their financial system. Um, and because they were the majority holder, um, they were probably going to stay with that system. And, and so what we did, our CEO um, was working on some of the things at the time, and he was a little overconfident, I think, that uh, in what we had done with Bell South Mobility and the, the fact that these people really supported us. Um, and so uh, between me and another salesperson, we both realized that um, SBC, being that they were the majority holder, was probably going to just go the route of staying the course with this other solution because it was fully integrated with their ERPs and it did a couple other things that we did too, but they weren't aware of. So we had to um, really go back out and do another kind of campaign and uh, I made sure to kind of to, to do the same thing that we did before that the SBC people were aware of what we could do, and and um, we really made the Bell South mobility, the minority portion of, of that merger, we made them very vocal and raised that, their voices up to what we've done and what we did and what the solution did. Um, and so the other sales guy and I, we, we said, you know, 
if this whole thing, if SBC is going to just select their own system and they're not going to um, go with this smaller system that we had at Bell South Mobility, we're going to at least go down swinging. We may be in a big fight, and, and uh, I probably shouldn't say this in fighting terms, but he and I both, we said, you know, if you get into a, a scuffle and the guy's bigger than you, you're at least going to, and you're on your back, you're at least going to go down swinging and, you know, try to get a couple of shots in as best you sure. basically do your best, um, yep. you know, and, and give it everything you have. So uh, we did, and we gave it everything we had, and, and we, we raised up the Bell South Mobility people, uh, made them very vocal and supportive, um, and then we also educated the SBC side um, to really clarify, again, to your point of, you know, the executives kind of had their view of what they could do, but we got kind of into the grassroots of the SBC side um, and, uh, you know, understood what their needs and requirements were and, and showed what we could do and, and what our system was already doing and capable of. Um, and so we got uh, some support from them as well. And then so the decision uh, was was made. And uh, that that was kind of another grassroots campaign that, that we had to do. And it's ironic that it was at the same company, but we and it's ironic that we built that with turning half of that company around um, and then had to do that again, but took the same approach essentially um, and made it work. Yeah, I love the theme of the show, Mike, that's developing that grassroots sale within a big company. Um, that's pretty classic. I mean, again, I know the customer you're talking about, and you're not just going to win that battle without being creative and without winning it at the market level. So uh, great stories. Appreciate that because stories are what the best in sales is really all about and what drives it. Um, let's hear another one. Do you remember the first sale of your life? Can you take us back? I think the first sale of my life was probably when I was making little crafts out of, ironically, telephone wire. If you, of course. You've seen all those telephone yeah, was, wires that are all colored? Yeah, it's just, it was your destiny, huh? Yeah. So, Telecom. Yeah. yeah. So I, I remember making these little rings and bracelets and selling them at like a lemonade stand uh, when I was, you know, seven or eight years old. How much did you get for those, uh, for the bracelets? Uh, it's probably a nickel back then, you know. Nice. Nice. Yeah. What uh, what gets you going on that? I mean, why, what made you think you were going to build these things and sell them? You know, I think it, uh, I, I have in, I'm somewhat analytical on one side of me. There's a very mathematical approach, and I'm very creative, and that the creative side really jumped out at me, and probably the analytical side came out and said, okay, great, you've, you've made these things. Now you can profit off of them. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good balance to have. Yeah, that's great. So, Mike, I think I may have already heard the uh, one of the tougher experiences you had in sales. I'm still picturing you outside that room with the executive uh, coming outside of that executive meeting with Bell South Mobility and pacing around with your boss trying to figure out. I mean, I've been in those in those buildings. I'm just trying to picture like they've got the little coffee stand. Like, what were you guys doing? Yeah, <laughs> I just can't yeah. can't imagine. Well, the biggest uh, thing was that we learned. Right. So we learned yeah. what we did in developing that grassroots. And mm -hmm. so that's. You face a problem, and, and one of the biggest takeaways was really that we learned from that, and then we could apply that same thing um, when we were you know, doing singular. So do you remember um, how big of a sale that ended up being to um, the second sale the, when the SBC and Bell South merger happened? Yeah, I remember that was uh, about $8 million, um, all being said. So it, it wasn't uh, a huge sale, um, 
Well, what was, I mean, as a percentage of what the company was doing, I mean, how did it compare to other deals within the company at the time? Yeah, it was extremely important to the company at the time. And, and, and you touch on a good point because it actually occurred, that sale occurred in uh, late 2001 and 2002. Um, and so that was um, just during the, the recession that had started, the downturn of telecom. And it started kind of in earlier 2001. And so it was extremely important to us as a company because we are a privately held company uh, and privately funded. And uh, so it, it was it was extremely important from a financial perspective to us as, a, as an organization. Let me ask you this: as part of that sale, again, I know there's kind of there were two stories there, but focusing on the uh, the second story, the Bell South and SBC uh, merger and what that meant for Fulcrum, did you did you have to go there where you where you had to drop price to make it work? I mean, how did price fit into this discussion? Yeah, there was always you know negotiations on price and. Uh, you know, we're we're somewhat unique that we, you know, we're not selling a commodity. So um, there obviously is negotiations on price, um, but you know there was um, there was a tremendous amount of value, and we had enough ROI examples to support some of the pricing that we gave given, um, where there were essentially self-funded projects where if they had if that was an eight million dollar project that that $8 million would be recouped in that first year um, because of the equipment that they would find and salvage and be in the proper tax districts. So we had a pretty powerful ROI um, and many different examples from previous customers like Quest um, and so forth that really had validated that. So um, I wouldn't say that there was a tremendous amount of negotiation, and there's always is, but... Um, we had some. We had a pretty good position, um, and with minimal competition. Maybe I shouldn't say this on a podcast, but you know, there's there's, <laughs> there's not a lot of you know there's there's not a lot of competition. I mean, they're here. They're, we've run into it here and there, but nobody has the experience um, that we have for the last 17 plus years in purely just telecom. Well, that's great. I just had a conversation with Sharon Gillenwater of Boardroom Insiders the other day, and we were having a very similar conversation about the difference when you're working at a company or selling a product that is, uh, you know, things have become commoditized. And when you're selling a real creative solution that you can really just kind of, you know, do what you need to do with and, and sort of work with the customer to find a price that makes sense for everybody rather than feeling like it's a price war. And, oh, I'm at 22%. I'm coming now. I got to get down to 20 to win it and, and all that. So it's great for you, Mike, that you're still in that position after all these years at Fulcrum. Yeah, and it continues. Uh, you know, we're currently in some heavy negotiations um, in India right now. And in fact, uh, the CEO is in India t- doing negotiations, which are some of the brutalist most difficult negotiations I've seen anywhere. And, and they warned us that uh, it was going to be a difficult one. So, um, but we're in a good position again because of our experience and, you know, our competition um, is not quite as experienced and doesn't necessarily solve the problem exactly. So um, it's a good position to be in, you know, well, it seems like it would be a big barrier to entry for competition because they'd have to build those case studies with the ROI. And, you, I mean, if you're new at it, you'd be kind of having to make it up. Yeah. Um, 
but that's such a powerful thing. I mean, I hadn't even thought about this. This happens frequently on the best in sales. I kind of get what you do and we talk about it a little bit and then you say something that sort of, sort of makes it click and I, I understand it better. Now I'm picturing your proposals with the return on investment on them. That must make it such a, it's probably like kind of more fun, right? I mean, to be able to go to the customer and say, well, okay, here's the upfront price, but here's what it's going to do for you in real value in dollars saved that you can quantify. And we can look at this together in 12 months and go, yes, this happened. Um, and then of course that'll help you to uh, keep the contract going longer term and all that. That sounds like kind of fun. It is. It is fun. And, and we've even challenged some potential prospects before in negotiations where we've, you know, we've asked them to, to do some sort of uh, revenue sharing or some sort of, you know, program where depending on the number of pieces of equipment that they find or that are incorrectly valued, that we come up with some sort of um, program for us to, to generate revenue. And in almost every case, they've declined because they know they're scared of what they, they, mm-hmm. they may, you know, we said, well, we could, we can take on some risk um, in this and, and you can take on some risk. Uh, I mean, Almost every case, they they've backed away from it um, because they're just scared and uh, of what they don't know, and that the, right. and what we are providing them is what they don't know essentially, and we're providing that visibility, and then eventually we're providing some knowledge and insight into that, and then we're giving them a tool to to continually and perpetually uh, provide that visibility and that management uh, of that the the, the remote uh, equipment. Very cool. All right, before we move into part two of the program, I want to share with our audience a service that is helping lots of people sell more and will do the same for you and your sales organization. Cold calling is dead, claim the self-appointed experts, but the experts are dead wrong. Voresight BP has a program backed by 10 years of real-world research confirming that no other sales activity has as great a return on effort when it comes to pipeline growth as cold calling. Voresight BP is a professional services consulting and training firm. They've helped companies like HP, Verizon Wireless, and Citrix Online turn their salespeople into enthusiastic and efficient prospectors. Check out their testimonials page. Here's a one-sentence sample of what people say. Quote, The powerful two-day on-site training was hands down the best inside sales training our team has ever received. End quote. That's just one sample. Their page at voresightbp.com slash testimonials is full of reviews like that. Voresight BP has been named a top service provider by the American Association of Inside Sales Professionals five years running. Voresight BP. True performance breakthrough is driven by the thoughtful but not complex application of persuasion. Voresightbp.com. Well, Mike, it's been great to talk to you so far about the, your perspectives on sales and your experience. Now we're going to move into part two of the program, and that's where we talk about some kind of different perspectives that you have. Um, continue to use examples from your own career as much as possible, but these are sort of more of the quick hit questions here. Okay. So the first thing I'd ask you is, would you call sales more of an art or more of a science? And you have to pick a side. It, it's definitely an art. Uh, you know, in my mind, it, it is it is. The, the the science you can look at the numbers and and things but it, to me it is so much more of uh, the way that you build relationships um, the, the there's the the face to face side of things the science you can look at you know how how much money can we put into marketing and how much return can we get and how many trade shows can we go to and um, I, I and and to me, even being more of an analytical guy, I still think sales is truly an art um, with a big emphasis on 
understanding the problem, building the relationships. Um, and, and I think that has a huge side of it. Um, I'm not saying that science um, is not a part of it, but I think a huge part in my mind is just it's more of an art. So marketing has become kind of the sexier word than sales in the 21st century. Do you agree with that? And how do you differentiate the two in your business? You know, the marketing topic's a really tough one for me, to be quite honest. Okay, let's hear it. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> because essentially uh, our company, Fulcrum, and again, I've been there since the beginning, we really do very, very minimal marketing. You know, and I see marketing as really everything you, you do to reach and, and kind of influence the prospects. And, and sales is obviously what you do to build the relationship, close the sale, and get a contract. And through a course of our history, we just – and it's something that we're actually in the process of changing a little bit. Um, but we haven't done much marketing. Our marketing has been – I hope I'm answering your question correctly. But, you know, our marketing has really been more of, um, you know, word of mouth has been such a powerful thing for us. So, Mike, what's your favorite sales tool that you'd share with the audience or really any tool? It doesn't have to be purely for sales, but just something that as a businessman that you you take advantage of every day, a piece of hardware or software or something like that. You know, I, it's I, it's crazy, but LinkedIn and, and Google searches and um, connecting the dots, you even said that earlier, you know, is such a huge thing now. I mean, I, I'll have other people and my dad was a, a private investigator for um, a long, long time, and he was a special agent for the state of California, and maybe I get this from some of him, but a lot of times there will be, like, people will say, hey, there's, you know, so-and-so at this company, and I'm able to kind of figure out, you know, and use my tools, and I found my tools like LinkedIn, um, and even social media, and uh, is really my biggest sales tool, essentially, to understand who's connected to who, and um, what that relationship is, and and you know, there's so much information out there. How can you not use that? So mm-hmm. um, that's my favorite tool. When I need to um, use a tool of some sort, it's the web, it's LinkedIn, and, and then um, developing those relationships from there. You know, I got on my soapbox about LinkedIn on a show I recorded recently with Sharon Gillenwater, which I referenced earlier, and I, I just did this yesterday. Is why it keeps coming up, but. We were talking about how I, I, I likened the people who bash LinkedIn to the people that Louis C.K. is talking about when he does his stand-up about airplanes and how people complain about oh. airplanes. And he's like, you're flying through the air, and it's going to take you three hours to get across the country. What are you complaining about? Yeah, uh, I've heard, I feel I've, the same way. I've heard that, yeah. You're flying in a tube, and they're bringing you drinks, and, and you're 30,000 yeah, exactly. feet in the air. It's going to take you yeah. – Three hours to get there, and it would have taken you three months to get there before. Exactly. Yeah. So I liken that with with LinkedIn because LinkedIn is just an incredible tool. I mean, seriously. That I mean, I in fact, you wouldn't be on the show without LinkedIn because it's not like I saved your number when I met you two years ago. I would have had no way to connect with you. So it's very valuable. And we were talking about that. I'll jump on the other one that you mentioned, just Google searches, because I'm building a business right now. Um, for a company, and we invested in some tools that weren't, weren't a huge crippling investment, but we did spend several hundred dollars on some, you know, data mining type of tools. I don't want to, I don't want to drop the name now and, and throw anyone under the bus because it just didn't work for our situation that well. Because what actually did work was 
me figuring out which companies made sense with relationships and then Googling them and calling the number on the website and getting the right person and, and getting sales out of that. So uh, I want to make sure that our listeners remember that don't overcomplicate it. Sometimes it's as simple as a Google search. If you've got a powerful solution, communicate it well, get a hold of the right people and take it from there. And don't confuse, you know, we uh, I've, I've actually been in a few webinars before to don't confuse LinkedIn and the professional side of things with the social media, the Facebook, and the Twitter side, the, a lot of those things are converging um, where, you know, Facebook and, and Twitter, you're, you know, you can still do a lot of business through that. I'm slow to moving to Twitter and Facebook as a business or professional tool. Um, right. I had a marketing person once tell me that it was extremely important that, you know, that those tools are all kind of the same and being used in the same manner in, in you know, selling your own personal brand and your company's brand. Um, I, I still believe in my mind that there still is a difference between the social um, side or personal side of your life and your professional. And, you know, those are blurring a little bit, but y you can't blend them really too much. And so I'll get off the soapbox, but, you know, LinkedIn is really a professional you know, thing, and it should be used as a professional tool. And, you know, Twitter and Facebook, I think, still are very much a personal thing. I mean, you can have a Facebook page and Twitter account for your companies, and, and maybe this is showing my age, but uh, I think those are still more of a personal thing for me, at least. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I, I agree with you. I mean, I get a little annoyed by the LinkedIn, you know, like the birthday things or the little, like, those puzzles that people put on there and all that. And Hey, I mean, they get 20,000 comments and, and stuff all the time. So I guess I, you know, the people have spoken, I suppose, but I'm definitely one of the get off my front lawn people about, about that on LinkedIn. Yeah. I want to see that there. Yeah. If, yeah. if I get a game request uh, on LinkedIn, then I'm out. That's it. I'm done. That'll be it. Yeah. Yeah. You're not like bejeweled or, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You're not going to play that. No. Yeah. Me neither. I do think Twitter, I like Twitter for at least it makes sense for a business like this one, like the best in sales, which by the way, at the best in sales, people can follow on Twitter. So, Mike, is there a person or a book or a movie that to this day inspires you to be as uh, as good as you can be in sales? Yeah, there's a few. You know, the, there's, uh, of course, any salesperson really should should read, you know, How to Win Friends. You know, that's kind of the de facto standard. The Dale, the Dale Carnegie, of course. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Um, and then a lot of people won't realize this, but a great sales book is uh, Green Eggs and Ham. It's a great book about sales. Okay. You know, you ha you have kids. First of all, let's make that clear. I, right? Well, this is before kids, actually. <laughs> okay. uh, I had um, many, many, many years ago. I uh, I had a sales manager who who made us read it, and I said, I read this as a kid. He goes, No, read it, read read it, and think about it. And so, if you you read it again, I mean, he's really trying to sell the green eggs and ham, right? He's He's saying, hey, look, how do you know? How, if you don't try it, how do you know it's not good, right? <laughs> and and uh, for a lot of salespeople, it can be kind of an easy entree into, okay, I get it. You know, you gotta, you have to be persuasive. You have to be persistent. Um, and then eventually the customer, you know, likes the green eggs and ham and can't live without it. So uh, it's a, it's probably not on the best sales books of all time, but it, re it resonated with me many, many. And this is before kids, long before kids. Like I said, I had a sales manager who said, you guys should read this. And uh, we did. And uh, I always remember that. That is awesome. I will say 
that probably a couple of tweaks for Sam I Am, I think he took a little too long to get to the point of, you know, you haven't really tried these yet. He probably could have brought that in maybe 40 pages earlier or something like that. I do have two little kids right now, so I read it fairly frequently. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a little sales tip for Sam I Am. There you go. Uh, I would say on the Dr. Seuss tip that the, uh, oh, the places you'll go is also a great one. Not necessarily like you're saying as directly tied to sales, but maybe life in general. But I mean, I feel like that a lot in sales. It's got all the down points and, and all that stuff. I don't know if you remember that one as well, mm-hmm. but you know, when you, when things, things are going to work, except sometimes they won't. And then there's four pages where he's down in the dumps and all that. And, uh, but that's just kind of life. And in the end, it's a happy story. And I like that one a lot. So good Dr. Seuss tips here, Mike. Yeah. Well, Mike, thanks so much for being on The Best in Sales. It's been a great show, and like a great sale, it's worth celebrating. So how do you celebrate a great sale? Well, I always like to celebrate um, a sale in two parts, really, with the customer and, and with the team. Um, in celebrating with the customer, you know, I like to understand what's valuable to them. How, what, what would celebration to them mean? Would it be a sporting event? Would it mean a nice dinner? Would it be some sort of crazy activity, um, something that really that they're able to participate in and, and uh, celebrate as well. Um, so but you have to understand your customer and, you know, you're starting you're kind of starting that relationship. And by celebrating with them and celebrating something that means something to them, you're just furthering your relationship with them even more so. So it's a double whammy. You're, you're doing great with that. Um, and then, of course, for me, it's really important to celebrate uh, with the with the team, the people that helped support me and and the whole effort itself. Um, and that can be a number of different things, you know. Depend again, kind of applying the same principles. What would they care? Would they want to go paintballing? Would they want to, you know, what would that mean um, to the team? What would they value? Because a lot of times, you have to, you know, some people don't necessarily just want to go out to dinner. Like, hey, when they're off of work, they they're off of work. I don't want to go do other things. So, um, you know, maybe we take time off to go to a K1 go-kart session or something during the day, um, during work hours so that they don't have to miss time with their family or something. But you have to understand your customer and then understand your team and celebrate to what matters to them. That's a great answer. Mike, when you're talking about the customer side of that, when do you bring that up? Do you wait until you're at the finish line or even past the finish line? Or do you bring early in the process? Do you feel like that sort of, sort of develops naturally? It depends. I, um, sorry to be vague, but it, it kind of depends. You know, I've had some customers where we kind of tease a little bit about celebrating and, um, that's always a good sign. Um, like I said, um, the CEO of my company is in India right now. Um, and I'm hoping he's, you know, celebrating here at the end of the week. But you can have those discussions even during negotiations or when you're you're starting that process, um, and that that can give you an inclination that you're doing well and you're doing the right things and that you're in the running with the other competitors. So it depends really on um, when to bring that up. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily bring it up um, before it's done, but I've had situations where the customers said. You're going to have to buy me some nice bottles of wine or a dinner or this, that, and I'll take that because, uh, yeah. you know, that's a good sign. 
Well, Mike, that about wraps up our show on the best of sales. Thanks again so much. Remind folks, how could they learn more about what you're doing today at Fulcrum? We already covered that there's no Facebook page. Probably not going to be an Instagram account anytime soon, but what's the best way to learn more about what you're doing? Sure, you can you can uh, reach Fulcrum at uh, www.fulcrum.net. Um, and we actually did just put out a Facebook page, um, but, nice. um, and then you can reach me on LinkedIn, uh, at Mike Hallahan, um, at Fulcrum Technologies as well. Great. Mike, we sure appreciate it. Thank you so much, Owen. Remember you don't close a sale, you open the relationship. I like it. Thank you for downloading the best in sales podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and visit our website at bestinsales.net.